Thanks for that link, Nina. Uh, this morning I watched the episode of Batman the Animated Series and mm. I have not seen an episode of Batman the Animated Series in a long time. And that was like, took, took me back. I was remembering how excited I used to be every Saturday morning to like tune in to another episode. And, and uh, that episode in particular is a really good one. Yeah. And I, I actually looked at the credits and the, the, the guy who does the Joker, the favor is voiced by Ed Begley Jr., which I'm like, Oh really? Yeah. I'm just like, Oh wow. They got like well. some, some like top, top tier talent here for this episode. <laughs> they, they always do, or they, they did on that show. Yeah. I think watching it again, though, I forgot how rough the animation itself sometimes was like had really good character sometimes. designs, but there's definitely a few clunky bits. But then I was like, I'm like, I'm just spoiled. I'm spoiled by. <laughs> That's exactly it. Computer perfection. <laughs> it, yeah, it depends no, on the studio that animated it. Because some episodes are done by like TMS, like in Tokyo. And those are really stand up because they're used to doing like really detailed anime stuff. And then some studios, not so much, but um, still, okay. still very strongly like, you know, storyboarded. Yeah. Whenever that would happen in Naruto, I would always say like, oh, they need to save some budget for an upcoming epic scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, oh, the reason that we have like very static looking characters is because the fight with Rock Lee is next episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I remember when the animated series came out when I was a kid and there was very little competition if you're looking for other good cartoons at that time. Like most of the cartoons that came before that era were not good. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was right off the heels of the, the like Tim Burton movie. And I feel like the animated series, it was like this perfect mix of like, it had just a little bit of that darkness from the movie franchise, but it still could be a little bit fun. And it was like, Batman could be a little bit silly but like it still took the material fairly seriously, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it rode that nice line. Like I actually think, I think it rode that line of just like the Joker in particular, where like the Joker is menacing, but he's still fun. Where like, you know, yes. other interpretations of the Joker, Jared Leto, you're like, <laughs> no, thank you. That, that character's <laughs> taken a ride over the past few decades for sure. <laughs> Man, yeah. oh. Speaking of the Burton film, did you know that when they pull out a map of Gotham City in that film, it's a map of Vancouver? Yes, I remember <laughs> I, that. I yeah, <laughs> it's like funny. upside down or something. I think. What? Yeah, you can you can even see like the beginnings of the word Burnaby in there, like <laughs> off to the right. Uh, like look it up later. It's it's really it's really funny because it just looks like they they took the map and just like scribbled on it to make it seem like oh this is Gotham right here. But it's like if you look at it closely, it's like oh it's obviously Vancouver. <laughs> Nobody knows where that is, though. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even filmed here. It's not one of those yeah. many, many other superhero movies or shows mm -hmm. filmed here. It's just the map of here. That's so random. It, Maybe it, they it, had it from another shoot. Like they were doing yeah, some other Hollywood really... thing and they're like, oh, we need a map. Where is this? <laughs> Canada? Sure. <laughs> Maybe someone on the crew is like from Vancouver and they were just like, yeah, I'm going to sneak this in. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> we
Welcome to the Trade Waiters and welcome Nina Matsumoto. We haven't uh, had you as a guest in a while. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Uh, last time we recorded in person, that was, uh, oh, was <laughs> pre-2020, yeah. I was going to say, that really dates the episode. Like, <laughs> we were probably at the library still. <laughs> I, I like uh, recording here. remotely, though. It makes it easier to gather, I think. That's true. And there's no time limit either. Yeah. That helps. Yeah, I think uh, as much as I think the Idea Lab is still a great thing, I think the pandemic kind of nudged us into Zoom, and I think Zoom has been a good fit for for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plus, you're going to have more people who are not local, right? We yes. haven't yet, but we could. You're right. I'd, I would say reach out to other people. Maybe like Van Calf is coming up. Ask around, maybe see who's interested. Yeah, I like I like the way you're thinking. Because <laughs> why not? If it's all remote, that's true. Uh, so, Nina, what uh, book are we doing today? We are doing Mad Love. This is a single issue story written by Paul Dini and drawn by Bruce Tim, with some assistance from Glenn Murakami. Uh, it's from the Batman the Animated Series continuity, all about Harley Quinn. Uh, character they created for the show. It was published December 14th, 1993, and it won an Eisner for Best Single Story in 1994. And it tells the origin of Harley Quinn and shows us her horrible relationship with the Joker. And do you have a a character building question for us? Yes, I do. Uh, What is your personal opinion on clowns? Do you love him or hate him? Do you have a favorite clown? What's your clown thoughts? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, all right, I'm JD, and uh, I think I mentioned last episode, I was, for dumb Twitter essay reasons, I was looking up the history of clowning recently, and uh, from the, I mean, I'm not going to claim to have any kind of expertise in this area or anything, but from the little bit I've read, I feel like that's the sort of, like, tension that people have of clowns are funny and fun, but also unsettling and spooky has always been part of the nature of clowns so I don't know I don't I'm not particularly afraid of clowns or anything like that but uh, I I like that this is not a recent phenomenon I I think it's maybe been emphasized by things that Stephen King wrote but um yeah he was picking up on something that was already there I I think they're interesting that's my short answer Uh, all right well I'm jam I am not I wouldn't say I'm like heavily pro-clown, you know, it's like if I see a clown, I'm like, oh, I need to be where that is happening. Uh, I don't have a fear of clowns, but throughout the years, I have come to know people who are clowns. So in real life, like people who have turned to the art of clowning and through those experiences, I've come to learn to respect it as an art form. It's got its own kind of special idiosyncrasies and clickishness, kind of like cartooning does. And so, uh, yeah, I, I respect clowning as an art form. Well, I'm Jeff Ellis and yeah, I don't know. I don't have strong clown opinions, but I definitely found it interesting when I f- discovered that there are people who are freaked out by clowns. Cause I always just sort of thought, oh yeah, clowns, like whatever. And so when I actually encountered people who are like terrified of clowns, I was just like, I don't understand what you're afraid of. So I found it really, it was really interesting that that's, that's a phobia people have. And it was a very fascinating several years ago when 
people decided to make scary clowns real and just wear clown outfits and just go into the woods and like wander around scaring people. But oh, I, I, I still have like my my um, sort of cryptid theory for that uh, is that <laughs> that was a, a point where we were, our universe diverged. We could have gone to the scary clown universe uh, and we didn't. I don't um, know which universe would have been better. The timeline was restored. Oh. <laughs> or, maybe by the clowns. Maybe they're the ones who did it. I was oh. going to don't know. Maybe, maybe we'd be better off uh, under the rule of the clowns. Uh, <laughs> insert the clowns, political joke here. <laughs> the clowns pushed us out of the Berenstein universe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've always been kind of clown neutral, you might say. Uh, I'm not afraid of them. I don't love them either no strong like no real strong opinions i guess like aesthetically i'm not the biggest fan of that stuff like the super bright colors the goofiness the campiness uh but i do love drag and i've i've heard people say drag is a new clown like new clowning hmm. you know it's like got the outrageous personalities they're there to uh make you laugh they sing and dance but they also are good at like like insulting people like throwing shade you know uh so i think uh you know i like drag queens that's kind of falls in the same realm. It's it's like clowns, but they're sexy. I mean, not <laughs> I not to that. knock anyone who are into clowns in that way. Uh, I, I think probably most people would agree. Uh, drag queens tend to be more um, attractive than your, your traditional clown. They're they're trying to be more. Attractive, yeah, exactly. Like, they're, I, they're trying to arouse you. Yeah, not to say that not, like they're not they're not succeeding, though. but I don't think <laughs> yeah. clowns are trying to. No. That's interesting because I feel like part of the the nature of clowns is to be outside like established norms to sort of like be the tool to sort of question expectations or question the the social rules of society or whatever and drag queens I feel like are, are that as well where mm -hmm. they're sort of like outside of a binary. Yeah and and gestures like historically they were there not only to entertain royalty but also to like make fun of them right and just to mm. keep them in check yeah and i think the, we, the safety release valve of society yes. they're the only people who could like insult like the king and like not get their heads chopped off or whatever <laughs> i think we need like a drag queen in the white house <laughs> like that would an be great official state drag queen. yes yeah <laughs> we, we need that kind of vibe there maybe then uh, the world would be a better place <laughs> i'm in i'm in favor of this can't can't make things worse that's for sure <laughs> never say that um, 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 all right anyway. uh, sorry <laughs> i wanted to say like why i chose this book first of all like i think the comic itself is very well written and drawn uh the artwork in particular is incredible but, mo but mainly like i've been a fan of this character of harley quinn since the 90s when i was watching batman the animated series and I think the trajectory of her character is a fascinating one. Like she, she appeared on a cartoon based on a classic comic book series. Then she started appearing in the comic books, then the video games, then the movies. And now she's had her own movie and is in her uh, own TV show. And yeah. I like how she started as kind of a cutesy sort of pinup girl that like cishet men love to draw and write for. And now she's kind of morphed into what I would call like a queer feminist icon. And I think that's really cool. And this comic was the first time they really fleshed out her origins and her like her horrible relationship with the Joker. 
which unfortunately a lot of straight couples take the wrong idea from and wear matching t-shirts that say I'm his Harley and I'm her Joker. <laughs> I really hate that. That's a super <laughs> healthy relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just read the story. Like, it's it's a dark story. And I don't expect everyone to love the story, but at, I think at the very least, I think you can appreciate how good Bruce Timm's art is. And I thought it'd be interesting to have, like, a broader chat about her and the Joker because they're both huge DC darlings right now. And especially for Harley Quinn to be this popular, it's, like, so... It's so unexpected. Like, Jim, Jim Lee said, like... Uh, he considers her like one of the four pillars of DC. Like he says, uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Harley Quinn. That's how oh, wow he considers her to be. I, I would agree with that. That's and cool. That's interesting too, because like of those four, uh, like she's the only one created in our lifetimes, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is decades and decades ago. Yeah, I, she is a relatively modern character compared to all the other very popular superhero comic book characters right now. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of an achievement. I remember a long time ago talking to someone about how superheroes have a real like barrier where like there's all these characters that were created in like the 40s and the 60s and then everything created after that, they have like a 20 year, 10 year shelf life and then they're done and then you don't see them anymore. And Harley Quinn would maybe be one of those ones that's kind of broke through that barrier of just like, no, this is just a character that is going to be around now and is not going to disappear. I was, when we, when you specified the 2015 edition, I thought there was going to be an additional story or something and not, uh, not just like the, the extra art pages, which the art pages were great. Um, Mm -hmm. I I was actually curious if it was going to get into some of the evolution of the character itself Because I think reading this, I found myself marking off like notes about my favorite interpretations of the character in other media. I like how the deluxe edition focuses on this comic. It doesn't talk about any other annotations. It's just about this. And I think that's great. We we rarely see like all the the rough sketches and even like the the rough colors of any, any comic. Yeah, I actually, because I had a print edition of Mad Love from when it was first released. And just because I didn't want to miss anything, I bought an ebook version of the, the deluxe edition. And like, I was really pleased with the extra content, like just to see Bruce Tim's pencils and to see some of the redrawn panels as well. Like, uh, oh, yeah little sequence of Harley Quinn in the lingerie and how like the editors thought it was too racy. So he had to redo <laughs> some of the, the panels. Like that was just really fascinating to sort of see how the work evolved. And I really enjoyed the color sheets because there's all these notes from Bruce Tim to the colorist. And it's just like, Mr. Colorist, please da da da. Like, please put white line here. Like, okay. Yeah. So about the creators, Paul, Paul Dini, the writer, Born in 1957, born uh, born and raised in New York City. He has a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in creative writing. And while attending college, he wrote freelance animation scripts for Filmation for things like He-Man and Dungeons and Dragons, uh, those cartoon series. And he also worked on Tiny Toon Adventures. But his big break came in 1992 when he became a writer, producer, and editor for Batman the Animated Series. And when he was working on... Batman, he was going through the worst time of his life. He went through several bad romantic relationships. He struggled with self-harm. 
and he nearly died when he got mugged. And he writes about all this in his graphic novel memoir called Dark Knight, a true Batman story, which I haven't read, but it's supposed to be very good. Anyone else heard of this? Read this? Nope. No, I didn't know about this at all. I'm like thinking I'm going to make a note to myself to look this yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I, I looked up a few pages. It looks really good. Uh, it's That's Dark Knight. This is not spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. It's the normal word, like as in day and night. So maybe uh, look that up later if you're interested in, to hear more about his struggles. Yeah, the behind the scenes stuff is always really fascinating to me, like the story behind the story. So that sounds really cool. Because mm-hmm, he was like, you know, really breaking into uh, fame with this celebrated cartoon series at the same time. His life was hell, it seems like. So I think that's interesting to, to know, like, e- even if someone is uh, like super, has a super successful cartoon series you don't know what they're going through they might still uh, be having some rough times so it's important to keep that in mind and Bruce Tim the artist he was born in 1961 in Oklahoma grew up in California his first exposure to superhero media was a 60s Batman series that's where he uh, fell in love with Batman he went to college for one year and dropped out due to bad grades in the mid-80s he applied for a job at Filmation and began working in animation there same as Paul Dini he mainly worked on layouts for things like Flash Gordon and He-Man and She-Ra. He also did some work for Ralph Bakshi and Don Bluth. And oh, also real Ghostbusters and Tiny Toon Adventures. Then he co-created and produced Batman the Animated Series. That's also where he got his big break. His career really took off from there. Dini and Tim, they first met when they were working on the cartoon Beanie and Cecil in 1988. Uh, there was not a successful show at all. Only eight episodes were made and five of them were uh, aired. Uh, they actually didn't start working together until Tiny Toon Adventures, though. And I don't think they liked it. Did you catch in one panel, there's a Buster and Babs bunny being hung? I didn't no. see that, yeah. <laughs> oh, I think, yes, it's in the kind of like childhood fantasy, right? Or the, yeah, the parenthood when, fantasy one. Yeah, yeah. when Harley is fantasizing about having a domestic life. Ah, I did notice the rabbit being hung and I thought that was like, well, this is, dark but I didn't yeah. realize it yeah no I didn't know that there was a an actual connection there mm-hmm. uh, that probably says something about how they felt about working on Tiny Toons as for Bruce Timm's comics career though he tr- uh, before Batman the Animated Series he tried to find work at DC uh, and Marvel but couldn't get a job there so he focused on animation his first comics were little minis that would get packaged in with Mattel toys for He-Man that's what he worked on before Mad Love. And Paul Dini, before uh, Mad Love, he d- worked on Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. So they had like next to like no comics experience before doing this comic. They mostly worked in animation. So this was both of their mainstream comics debut. Yeah. And it's a and really good one. There's a lot of notes in it from, uh, from Bruce Timm himself saying how challenging it was to do a comic. And how he decided to stick to a traditional panel layout just to take some of the burden of, you know, if you rely on a rule, that's one less thing you have to think about. And I thought, I don't know, it felt like it was really validating somehow because Bruce Tim is an incredible artist, an incredible character designer and an incredible animator. And for him to say, even with all of this animation experience, and obviously he's got a very deft hand for him to come and say, man, putting this comic together was really hard. It made me feel... Slightly better about it. 
my life, I guess. I agree. Yeah, that was that was interesting to read because I would imagine like, oh, like laying this out must have been no problem at all. And it's like, no, no, I had to stick to this really rigid nine grid. Like it was really hard to plan this out. Um, yeah, that was that was cool. Like looking at his work, you, you can definitely tell he works in animation, but uh, the comics transition seemed pretty natural. Like, yeah. if I didn't know the struggles, I would have guessed, like, he worked in comics before, like, uh, a ton of things. But no, yeah. apparently. Agreed. And I would read more comics by Bruce Chen for sure. Oh, oh yeah. 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 And he has done more uh, Batman stuff since the, uh, this one. But yeah, pretty good debut. That It got them an Eisner. Like, almost, <laughs> that must have been pretty yeah. validating. You know? Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten that they worked on Tiny Toon Adventures. And and now I'm I'm remembering, I used to be a big fan of Tiny Toon Adventures. And there was an episode where Batman showed up for a single like scene and I always thought to myself I'm like that's probably the moment when these this writer and this storyboard artist were like let's do something else together let's do this <laughs> Batman thing <laughs> yeah I wonder if they had anything to do with that I'm, I didn't look too far into what they actually did for Tiny Toons I have heard like lots of horror stories from people who worked on Tiny Toons so it seems like nobody had a good time working on that <laughs> well I was like Animaniacs better anyway there yeah yeah that was that was the better one so i think it's important to know about harley quinn's origins as a character before uh talking about this comic because uh like i mentioned she came from a the cartoon series so that was for Bat batman the animated series this was uh, she was created 31 years ago as a one-off character she was created by writer producer paul dini uh, he was homesick one day, and he saw his friend Arlene Sorkin on the daytime soap Days of Our Lives uh, playing a jester in a fantasy sequence, and he thought she was really funny, and so he filed that away in his head as a, a possible character in the future. And then for the eighth episode of Batman, they needed a pretty girl to roll a giant cake into a room like a showgirl, and Deanie thought... Let's make this into more of a character. And he used his uh, Arlene Sorkin idea there. And he also liked the idea of the Joker having uh, like a cute petite woman as his right hand instead of a huge menacing uh, thug like most comic villains had at, uh, back then. So he got his friend Arlene Sorkin to do the voice even. And Bruce Tim designed Harley. And J the Joker's favor, that's um, the episode she first appeared in, uh, this aired September 11th, 1992. And she was very auspicious. Hit. Yes. <laughs> wow. September the 11th, 1992. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, she was a, a huge hit and she started appearing in more episodes and even had episodes all about her. Most notably Harley and Ivy, which would pair her up with Poison Ivy. This became a, a very like important seed in her uh, development as a character. But that's for much later. So Deanie and the other writers um, started thinking about like what her backstory could be. And they dropped a few hints here and there in the cartoon, like how she used to be a psychiatrist. But her origin wasn't fully revealed until this comic, which came out in 1994, no, 1993, December. It reveals that she was a Joker psychiatrist and she fell for him and lost herself in him. And they took inspiration from people who are attracted to criminals and also, uh, Dee Dee and Tim had a, a mutual friend in their lives who was in a, a, like an emotionally abusive relationship. 
uh, not physical, uh, fortunately. And she got away from it, they said, eventually. And now she's like happily married. So that's good to know. That was in the, the notes for the deluxe edition of Mad Love. Paul Dini said that, had this to say about this comic. He said, we sort of defined who Harley was in this comic. Uh, I was great, uh, very grateful the book got the response it did because Bruce and I thought about doing it just to see if we could do a comic. I think that it was a really great debut shot for us both. It was the first big thing we did for DC. As we were right down the hall from each other at at Warner Brothers, we could pop into each other's office with sketches for new ideas or changes to the script. Any business Bruce felt bogged down the story, he could cut out, and I would tighten up the dialogue. So it all fit. It brought a lot of the emotion from the show onto the comic book page. Bruce draws in a very engaging way. Even when the Joker is a total maniac, in Bruce's hands, there's an undeniable charisma and appeal to him. There's something engaging about him. There's a sweetness to Harley, even when she's got tears dripping down her face and a manic grin while talking about how Batman's gonna die. You like her. You're into the emotion. I think that emotional connection between Harley and the readers took a lot of people by surprise. And I guess that's why it won an Eisner and a Harvey. It was unique at the time. It was fun to revisit this for me. I read this when it first came out because I love the animated series and... I really liked the character of Harley Quinn and, you know, I love Bruce, Bruce Tim's art. So yeah, I picked this up right away. And I think I then they put out another comic not long after with Harley and Ivy with a different artist. And I was thumbing through that and the art, I was like, I really bounced off the art this time around, but uh, Harley and Ivy is uh, definitely an important fixture in the character's development. Uh, we can talk about later, but yeah. It was, it was, I, I read this when it first came out. And it was fun to revisit it. I think I probably am looking at it differently now than when I probably first read it. But I'm going to let the other trade waiters talk for a bit first. Oh, well, I'm probably on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. So I'd never watched the animated series and I'd never read this book before today. But I'm really glad I did. I really enjoyed the story. I thought as a character, it was really interesting getting to know Harley's origin a little bit better. I really liked how sympathetic the portrayal was, despite the environment being very zany and very cartoony, the the relationship felt very human and very real, but a, in an adult relationship kind of way. So uh, I did really enjoy it. That's my, my kind of overall gist. I liked it. All right, I guess I'm kind of in the middle here where uh, I watched the animated series pretty regularly when it was out, uh, but I've never been much of a DC reader, like the number of DC comics I've read is very small. So I never read this one. Haven't read a lot of Batman generally, but, and I guess because of that, the animated series has become sort of my benchmark of who Batman is as a character, uh, as well as all the other characters that were in the series. So obviously this is done by the same creators as the series. So it feels very much in line with who I think the characters are. And it just, yeah, it, it very, uh, very succinctly sort of sums up their, who they are, not just Harley, but also Batman, also the Joker. Uh, I, I saw G. Willow Wilson is, or is writing or has written a Harley Quinn Ivy, or Poison Ivy story recently, I think. And I saw a tweet from her where she was saying that uh, she, when she's in meetings with like staff at DC, she has to remember that, oh, right, Batman's not a villain, technically. Uh, 
because she's been writing from Harley Quinn's point of view. And I can see that in this book where like, okay, if Harley's the one that I'm supposed to sympathize with here, like Batman's not that great. <laughs> Getting <him laughs> but he's not like awesome. so far off that I can, I can't see the other point of view. Like clearly he's the main character for most of, or for, for the animated series generally. And it's not that this is in disagreement with that. It's just, we're seeing a different point of view here, I think, which is really interesting. Yeah, I will also note that from the perspective of someone who doesn't read a lot of superhero comics generally, I really appreciated <laughs> how self-contained the story was and how like even my just general broad strokes knowledge of this universe was totally sufficient. Like I know who Batman is generally, you know? I know who Alfred is, Commissioner Gordon, great. Joker, cool, Harley Quinn, all right. And that's really all I needed to know. Like, uh, I didn't need to know a lot of lore. It didn't drop us into a very specific period of time in the storyline. And I really, I appreciated that. Yeah, that, that's part of why I wanted to talk about this specifically, because it's such a good self-contained one-shot. Like you could potentially give this to someone who d doesn't even know anything about Batman and they could still enjoy it, I think. I think so, yeah. Uh, I do have one gripe for DC, and this is not a new narrative for us for, at Trade Waiters, but because we are Trade Waiters, we wait for the graphic novels. And I don't currently have a local comic store, so I can't just like walk in and find it on a shelf. So I ordered it off the internet and I bought the wrong book. Uh, I know that this is an easy thing to do, so I thought I was being careful. I looked to see, okay, I know I, I've I remember who the creators of the series are. So I looked it up online and I saw, okay, here's a book. It's written by Paul Dini. It's called Mad Love. It's about Harley Quinn. This must be it. Uh, it was not the one. It was a completely different, not comic. It's a novel called Mad Love by Paul Dini and someone who's not Bruce Tim. And <laughs> wow, just, how confusing. Uh, it had a different cover, but it's, it's painted. So I figured, okay, well, you know, that they do that sometimes. They'll have like different versions with, of the same book with a different cover. I looked to see the page count because I figured, well, I'll just pick the one with more pages. That must be the right one. At least I'll know I'll have the story if I'm wrong. Nope, totally wrong. And I'm glad that you, I'm sorry you had this experience. I'm glad you relayed that story because I very closely only I almost made the exact same mistake so I remember you telling us this you're like hey watch out there's a prose version with the same author and the same title and I'm like okay so I was on Amazon I was looking through it and I'm, I'm like first result here it is tons of reviews and then I'm like oh but I should check the ISBN and sure enough I had to go down into the ISBN and make sure I was getting the deluxe edition so <laughs> I two, two books with the same title and same author hmm. Uh, next time I'll send a picture of the cover to make sure everyone's yeah. reading. Oh, this is not, not on you. This is DC yeah. responsible here. I'm not comics, even, I can't even blame Amazon this time. Like, superhero no, comics in general have been yeah. causing us some serious edition related <laughs> problems, let's say. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, like, yeah, I really enjoyed reading this book. It was great. Uh, I loved seeing all the sort of the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I also really liked the written part. Both the, the uh, both Bruce Tim and Paul Dini have like a page each where they talk about the book and creating it. And like, that was really interesting just to sort of see 
how like how where it fits in their life story as well as where it fits in the history of comics so yeah it was good well uh jeff you said you see the story a bit differently now from when you first read it oh yeah i mean i think that probably uh, when i first read it i like didn't really think as much about like harley quinn's perspective in it you know like i think it was just like oh it's this fun superhero story like that the wacky Joker and and Harley Quinn and their wacky dynamics. I think reading it again this time, I'm thinking I'm I'm seeing a lot more of the metaphor for like relationship abuse and just like how the Joker's like a really shitty boyfriend. Like I I don't think I was thinking as deeply about the work the first time I read it, and I think looking at it now, it's uh, I see this a lot more as just kind of yeah, it's really sort of showcasing like an emotionally abusive relationship, and I think that that's maybe been the most interesting thing with the evolution of Harley Quinn's character too, which is like, she's a bit of a like put upon character in this story. And as subsequent versions and iterations of the character have come out, it's like the story becomes more about her escaping from the Joker and like moving on with her life and doing other things, which I think is also like positive. Cause I think with the nature of comics, superhero comics, Superhero comics tend to like tell the same thing over and over again. Like Peter Parker's always going to have bad luck and not have enough money in the bank or whatever. And like, I think there's the danger with Harley Quinn that it's like, oh, she's always going to be getting slapped around by the Joker. And so it's nice that that has kind of evolved out of the character. So I think that's maybe, I think, I think seeing the Joker slapping Harley around in this comic I reacted more to it than I think I probably did the first time. Like I probably just read it and it just rolled off my back when I read it the first time. And this time I sort of was like, oh, geez, like he just backhands her. Like, wow, I forgot that. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's nice to see the character become more sophisticated with age. Mm -hmm. And this is like, I'm getting outside of the, the, the work, the original work here, but like, um, no, but it's it's true. I think this is this is fairly well, it is foundational for her lore. So I think going back to this as a root and then examining where other people have taken this character is valid. And uh, kind of as you were saying, with the extension of her character in the broader DC universe, let's say, uh, I recently watched Suicide Squad and uh, she's a very prominent character in that. And there was a, a scene where she she, you know, she falls into a risky relationship and you know the second that she she sees enough red flags she's like no you know I've been here before and it, oh. it goes a little over the top after that and I think she like decapitates him or something but it was really an interesting an interesting oh, yeah. moment that you don't see very often where it's like I've learned from my mistakes and I'm not doing that again that that was my favorite moment of that film was like Harley Quinn falling in love with this dictator and then she's like so what are you gonna do next he's like well if anyone opposes me i'll kill their children and then she just like shoots him yeah <laughs> like we're, we're talking about second suicide squad right i guess okay. it is the second suicide squad. I, I haven't I'm seen sorry. either I watched, of them i watched things randomly i'm sorry that's okay actually um jam i was interested in knowing how familiar you were with harley quinn before reading this so I know. So it's like I, I get a lot from osmosis of being just kind of a person in comics, even if I don't ever manage to dive too deep into the superhero side of things. Right. So I exhibit at conventions and I did watch like 
random episodes of Batman Beyond here and there where like I would watch 20 minutes of it but then I would always just kind of you know fall off and go do something else so it's like I knew Harley Quinn and the Joker were in cahoots you know and I knew like this this clown looking character with the black and the red that's Harley Quinn and then there was this period of time in uh if you ever go to a comic convention she's a very very popular cosplay character so it's like if you look good in a bikini tank top and you can put your hair in pigtails and have a baseball bat, baby, you're Harley Quinn. That's that's all you need to do. And then I knew, I think I, so I hadn't seen the first Suicide Squad, (laughs) the one with the weird Joker. I think this, this one I, I, I wanted to, I found it in the library, you know, this is kind of how I roll. It's like, oh, look, it's Suicide Squad 2. Oh, sure. You know, so I watched Suicide Squad 2 and I, knew about her relationship with Poison Ivy. I know that she's had a cartoon with Poison Ivy and certain comics. So very surface level knowledge of the character. But I think the gist that she was in a relationship with Joker and it was not great and then no longer. So did any of the stuff in this comic surprise you? I think it surprised me how, I think I, as I mentioned before, how human they wrote this relationship and how sympathetic they were to Harley Quinn. Because as I mentioned, from an outsider's perspective, you kind of get like, oh, eye candy, you know, mm-hmm. like cheesecake. That's what Harley Quinn is for, is she's cheesecake. And definitely like Tim, <laughs> he can he can draw a very sexy person and they're very- <laughs> He loves very doing sexy. it. <laughs> he loves doing it. He's very good at it. And uh, she looks very sexy in this comic as well. But there's dimensionality to her as a character. And that depth really surprised me. Uh, I felt this this narrative of her, you know, becoming sympathetic to him as he tells his, you know, tragic life story of his own maybe, you know, childhood abuse and then becomes almost trauma bonded to him. I just I was so surprised at how true those beats of the relationship rang to me. And speaking of how the Joker tells his sob story, which is like made up, obviously, I think they took some of that for the the Dark Knight movie. Hmm. Yeah, where he keeps telling his origin, quote unquote origin, and it's like uh, different each time. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they kind of got the idea from this. Not verified, but I mean, maybe. yeah, it's definitely a consistent beat of the character at the very least is that mm-hmm. he just keeps telling you stories and then if you stack them up you realize like wait a minute you can't be telling the truth because all these things contradict each other yeah and it, it's funny how like i mentioned before uh, a lot of hetero couples uh get the wrong idea from this or like oh relationship goals i'm like what like it, their relationship has always been presented as terrible and abusive and that harley shouldn't be in love with him like from the very beginning and it's like evident in this and like uh, uh, Jeff, you were saying like uh, with a lot of superhero stuff, things tend to go back to the status quo a lot because they kind of have to. And there have been like a lot of stories like in the cartoon and in comics where Harley's uh, like, that's it. I'm done with a Joker. I'm leaving him forever. And then he always pulls her back in somehow. That that happened a lot, like over and over. But then Even over in time, the end of this comic. Yeah, yeah. And that's an important part of her character too. Like she never really learns or she's too obsessed with him. And uh, like Paul Dini said, this is meant to be a cautionary tale too. Uh, but then like, as her, the character evolved, um, 
I guess with different writers taking on her story, she has become more of an independent woman. Like she's pretty much broken free of the Joker now, and she is in a relationship with uh, Poison Ivy on the the current animated series, uh, the Harley Quinn show. I think it's pretty neat. I didn't fit it into my day today, but I was actually thinking about watching the first couple episodes of the HBO Harley Quinn show. So I'd have like a count, maybe basically see the origin of Harley and then see where Harley is. Today. Have you watched any of it? No, but I've seen a lot of the memes. Uh, I'm actually not <laughs> the biggest fan of it. Like I wish I liked it more, but it's just so mm. incredibly violent and vulgar. That's not for me. Oh, okay. Interesting. I wish I could, they, if they kept it more like, PG PG 13 maybe I would have like I would like it more like sometimes it's good to have some limitations I think right like you don't you don't have to go like full censorship like uh you can't use the word kill or you can't have guns like but right. Batman the anime series had some limits because it's still for kids and I think mm-hmm. that, that helped a little bit but with Harley Quinn it's so violent and uh, I don't know um I, I watched like mm-hmm. the whole first season of it and for that, I just kind of got tired of it. It was just too much. I can okay. see why people like it, though. Yeah. I, yeah, I haven't watched that, but I was going to say, like, the the cinematic universe Harley Quinn has an interesting story arc, and I haven't watched the first Suicide... Apologies to anyone who I spoiled Suicide Squad. Yeah, multiple. no, I think it was me. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. But, That's not the major plot points. By the but, time it gets into the library, I feel like... <laughs> right. But anyways, like, but uh, I haven't watched the first movie, but Jonathan assures me it's not worth watching, but that sets up Joker and Harley and then Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, they break up and Harley Quinn is, is really sad about it. And it's about her realizing she doesn't need the Joker anymore. And then the Suicide Squad part two, it's like Harley just comes into her own and like becomes an awesome character. So it's like, there's this great, like three- arc structure just to the harley quinn character yeah Uh, i I love birds of prey (laughs) i haven't watched birds of prey oh it's so much fun i wouldn't recommend suicide squad 2 but i did enjoy harley quinn in it i gotta say then you would probably like birds of prey okay uh i will say if you are canadian i understand that's it's it's a non-zero portion of our audience and you have access to cbc gem there is a show on it called tuned which is interviews with voice actors Uh, And they have an episode on LGBT characters and kind of the history of, you know, queer coding in cartoon media. Uh, And they actually have an interview with the voice actor for Harley Quinn in this, in that new series, where she talks about like what it's like to embody a villain character who is also queer coded and kind of the ramifications of that. And I thought that was very interesting. uh, Kaylee Kuoko, is that her name? Kaylee Kuoko, yeah. I think the, the major portrayals of harley quinn aside from arlene sorkin have been done by tara strong margot robbie and kaylee cuoco so far and lady gaga is going to be uh harley quinn next and the sequel sequel to the uh the the latest joker movie i i remember hearing that yeah and i was thinking like oh no I swore I'd never see another Joker movie, but this might get me. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. I've not seen that Joker movie. I, I want to. I want to see it, especially if I want to see Lady Gaga as Harley Quinn. I don't know how it's going to work. Like, I, I wouldn't cast her myself, but maybe they have a, a, a brand new interpretation of her. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, I have to fact check myself as well. So <laughs> I looked up uh, Stay Tuned. 
season one, episode three, the interview is actually with Tara Strong, who does Poison Ivy, not Harley Quinn. Oh. Oh, okay. Oh, for some reason, I thought she did Harley Quinn in something. So Arlene Sorkin uh, voiced Harley in Ar- uh, Batman Arkham Asylum, and uh, Tara Strong voiced Harley Quinn in Batman Arkham Underworld. So she has done Harley Quinn as well. Okay. Whoa. Anyway, stay tuned. It's great. (laughs) Man, before I I could spend a lot of time just talking about Harley and other media, but before I get into that, like I was actually just wanted to get some thoughts from you guys on just like Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn's sexuality in this comic, because like I definitely was noticing like I think the creators were enjoying the fact that they weren't on network television on Saturday mornings so you have Harley Quinn in a really skimpy teddy which I'm sure Bruce Tim was just like this is happening um <laughs> this, this was adapted to the tv series as an episode oh that's right yeah, yeah in the new adventures okay mm-hmm. did they keep I did I, I didn't watch that for reference does she still have the same uh see-through red uh nightgown oh yeah she does okay okay all right it's, well it's, yeah, it's I not guess... as like you, you don't see your silhouette quite as well though right it's more stylized because it's an animated series right i was gonna say I, I, they maybe had uh had to do a little bit of adaptation <laughs> but um I, I enjoy the fact that they just acknowledge that like Joker and Harley Quinn maybe have sex, which is like, I think for someone who's watching the Saturday morning cartoon show is probably just like head explode moment. Um, (laughs) But then uh, they also sort of have this implication when they get into her origin story, like they have her at university getting like a D and then going to a professor and walking out of the room and the professor's covered in lipstick and she's got an A plus. And like, I... I I know they're like it's kind of meant to be played for laughs, but like I definitely was sort of like thinking a little bit about what that says about the characters. Like she didn't she didn't earn that psychology degree. Like she got her psychology g- degree through other means. Like yeah, yeah I was well, a I big fan it, of that. It speaks to her character as being like someone who gets what they want at any cost. You know, mm. so it's like she she obviously had this undercurrent of moral grayness going before she even met the Joker, where she's like, I want to be a psychologist for reasons, you know, that motivation wasn't really clear, but she set her mind on what she wanted. And it didn't really matter to her. You know, she she didn't feel conflicted at all. Uh, I like that it gives her, we don't often see women in media having permission to kind of own their sexuality. It is still, I think, fairly unusual. So I did like that it gave her a lot of agency. But it, it wasn't you know, it wasn't role model behavior, but she's she's a villain. You know, right. yeah. Also, they cut that part out in the uh, animated adaptation. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, probably for good reasons. Yeah, and I think Network it, you need to have that scene yeah. in the context where we're never at any point told that she's less intelligent. She's maybe she didn't like do all the schoolwork in university, but it's not that she couldn't have. She just chose not to. Right. Um, I don't know about any of you who have like watched the series, but I never really thought of Joker getting any sex from Harley or Mm. vice versa, I guess, because she's the one who really wants it in this and she's not getting any. 
I don't know. Like, I I don't think of Joker as being like a particularly sexual being ever. I think he's too selfish for that. You know, I, yeah. I feel like she's someone who's constantly trying to get it from him, and she he never reciprocates because mm. he never gives her what she wants. We definitely ever. get those vibes in this comic where he's just so single mindedly focused that he can't even <laughs> deal with this like incredibly sexy person in a romantic lawn- lingerie, like propositioning him on the table where he's working you know he just yeah so i don't, I, I don't think she I even turns him on yeah i don't yeah, think he I cares about her that. at all right yeah he's more using her for other other means i um, did really like that in, in, when they're in the asylum it feels kind of like they're both using each other or like uh the joker is like making up these stories so that he can get time with uh, Harley, uh, so that because like she's supposed to be a psychologist. So if, if he, as long as he keeps talking, she'll be around. This is also maybe possibly an, an escape plan down the road. Uh, and then she's getting from him this sort of like unhealthy relationship stuff. But mm-hmm. I mean, she's manipulating him as much as he's manipulating her. Like I feel like that mutual manipulation is like, oh, now I'm maybe I'm starting to understand how they got together in the first place. Yeah, I can I can see that. It almost felt like thrill-seeking behavior. Yeah. Where Harley Quinn didn't want to live this kind of basic life. She wanted to have a life with a lot more excitement, a lot more glamour. And in her mind, supervillainy fit that bill. Or at least it fit the bill at the time. But I mean, she she stuck with it, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, like how I, I like that as an alternative to, and I don't know, maybe this is just my poor memory of the show, but I at least got the impression from the show, or remember the impression from the show that the Joker basically made her fall in love with him as a strategy to escape, and that is not what's in this comic. Yeah, I did like that. I think that if it had been that more predictable narrative it wouldn't have been as compelling and Mm -hmm. again like it gives more agency back to harley where it's like she sees this as an opportunity for herself and she chooses to take it yeah i really like how she's the one who decides to become harley quinn the joker didn't dress her up and give her this name and say you have to be my my hench girl now she's the one who does this on her own volition i think that's really important to her origin story yeah Yeah, i like that this is also the the reason or the first real evidence that this relationship can't last is that she's trying to help him out by killing the Batman. uh, And he's really not down with that. Like here she is doing as good a work as he's ever done. Uh, Good, not being the right word, of course. Uh, And like, he just totally rejects that. Like he doesn't want her to be anything other than a sidekick. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, she didn't do as good a job. She did better, right? <laughs> I did like that. Nearly, nearly, that yeah. Twist, that twist in the narrative, I think, was great because Batman is, he's been knocked out by Harley Quinn from her deception and he's hanging upside down above a pool of piranha and he's been disarmed and he's barely conscious and she's like, all right, I'm going to drop you into this tank. And he's like, well, but uh, how will the Joker know that you got me? And she's like, oh, that's a good point. I better 
call the Joker. And then of course, sure enough, the Joker shows up and he screws it all up and (laughs) Batman's able to escape. And then he says to the Joker, he's like, I knew that if I got her to call you, that's would be my key to getting, getting out of this. Right. Like that was so great that Batman is playing three-dimensional chess with the Joker like that, you know, like. (laughs) And he also acknowledges her. He, he says that like, hardly he came closer to defeating me than you ever have yeah and and like the joker has so much pride like whenever harley does anything better than him like even just come up with a joke he can't stand it and that's that's so true to like abusive relationships like there's so many relationships where the man can't stand it when the the woman is more successful than him like makes more money or i don't know like just having any kind of success at all just drives him mad and uh i like how that's that is the joker's downfall in this story yeah or even just ideas of their own you know yeah she has she just has a different perspective on the same situation and that amount of agency you know still drives him nuts well i mean i i I mean again i love just the the simplicity of like how the, the joker was like oh i have this perfect plan to kill batman I'm going to feed him to piranhas, but the only problem is I want him to see smiles when he dies and piranhas have their mouths upturned. So it's, it's not going to work. And then Harley Quinn's basically just like, well, what if we just drop him in upside down? They don't see the smiles. <laughs> and that's like a great solution. That's a great solution. And then like the Joker's like, well, if you have to explain it. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> I also like that, that that's sort of like, it totally fits with his character. Like this is from what I know of the Joker, this this is who he is, that he's he's got this sort of like his core operating principle is this weird idea about like making the world into a joke. Uh, and like if he like when he fails to kill the Batman, it's because well, it's not the right joke. It's got to be the right joke or like what is even the point? Do we all think the animated series Batman and Joker are the best Batman and Joker? insufficient data oh um <laughs> I, I, I i have not read a lot of comics but uh from what i've seen of the comics they will sometimes go as dark as any of the movies or worse and i am not it's not just not not what i want out of batman mm-hmm. this is what i want out of batman yeah i this this is my quintessential batman the bruce tim paul dini batman that's my batman and I played all of the Arkham games. Um, and I think 50% of what held my interest was the fact that Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill were doing the voice work. So it, even though the visually, I'm not as big a fan of the visual aesthetic of the Arkham series, that the voice same voice actors are there gave me some continuity to just like hook it into that, that same sort of universe in my brain. Yeah, and I would say Arlene Sorkin is like, another co-creator of this character too so much of this character is her mm. it's like her voice is mostly just based on her and her image and it's uh she should be cr- uh, credited at least a little bit i think oh yeah <laughs> yeah even just the the yeah. accent like the brooklyn accent is yeah, like so fundamental good. to who she oh, is as a so character true. yeah that's one thing i loved about uh the character when i was watching the show oh speaking of arkham asylum though I think it's really interesting how for the longest time Harley Quinn was mostly just like the animated series character. But then in, in 2009, when 
Arkham Asylum, the video game came out, which Paul Dini wrote for, he put Harley Quinn in there. And I think that introduced her to a whole new generation of fans. But that was also when, like, she was still voiced by Arlene Sorkin. But that was when she uh, had a, a new design for the first time, right. uh, which I would describe as a, a gothy bondage nurse, like way more revealing and sexy. And I really didn't so that's like that's where it. all the cosplay came from, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not like that look at all. I was like, no, that's not who she is. She's supposed to be, like, like completely covered and, like, uh, yeah. very petite and, uh, I don't know, I... The, you, you didn't like the aesthetic also, Jeff. Yeah, the original uh, Harley Quinn bodysuit is perfection. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that came close, that even came close, was in the most recent Suicide Squad movie where Margot Robbie had the red and black leather uh, jacket. And, and like, like it was like kind of a combat-ready adaptation of the bodysuit. Like she didn't have the, the, the hood. But yeah, it was all right. Like it was fine. <laughs> was fine you know i did not i super did not like the original suicide squad like uh margot robbie mm. with hot topic, yeah, the hot topic version no yeah <laughs> like daisy dudes i think it was yeah she was she was only ever campy looking in the animated series interestingly enough and ever since arkham asylum she's always had this like edgy um like bad girl look kind of punky kind of gothy and I've kind of made peace with it at this point. I'm like, that's just how she is now. I have to accept the the old Harley is dead. Uh, we have new Harley, which is, she has her own pros as well. Like how she's more independent and she's broken free of the Joker. And I guess her not having that clown outfit is kind of symbolic of the Joker having less power over her. And I think my favorite modern version of her is the Birds of Prey version the Harley Quinn movie. Yeah, that was good. I really liked what they did with that character. I mean, I've seen lots of really fun takes on just the character of Harley Quinn. Uh, before we move on from the comic, I just have yeah, one more gripe. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's with the color. So we've got, this is done in 1992, which to be fair, this is very early days of Photoshop. Like when, in if you look at the notes to the colorist that Bruce Tim wrote, he's not even referring it, referring to it as Photoshop. He's just saying that art program. He still refers to the separator, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is a a, a process. So like when you're, uh, probably Jeff can answer this better than than I can. But like when you're separating it into C M Y and K, like you did for early production, mm-hmm. like that was a whole technical role. Yeah. No, this does use Photoshop, but. But yeah, I, he's also referring to a separator, maybe because this is in that transitional zone. Okay. But like we've got these color guides that I that Bruce Tim made, and they're all done with markers, and I just like them so much better. I'm with you 100, percent John. Thank you so, so good. It. I mean, You're it's so, so frustrating. Like it, like <laughs> on this podcast, we have half of all the living cartoonists who use markers regularly for interior pages of comics there's not many of us and just this is so much better than just photoshop they're so uh, beautiful I mean, they're so beautiful yeah. and you can grit. do a lot with photoshop but like oh. he even says to the colorist oh use that airbrush tool i hate all other photoshop tools oh. never use airbrush it's oh. bad the way that he does like the transition between colors and like the cave scene he's like don't do it like this though do it like so airbrush. Much I'm like, no. 
And like, what blows my mind is that he basically colored the whole thing. Yeah. Just like do a <laughs> good, like clean up these scans, make a book of this. This is what I want. That's what I want too. I'm with you 100%. Yeah, Bruce uh, Tim is incredible at colors. Not only is he good at drawing, he could do colors really well. I How I hate him. <laughs> I was blown away. I did not expect like that, that, sequence like being able to see the the quote-unquote color keys but basically the <laughs> marker colored version by Bruce Tim was worth getting the deluxe edition on its own in my opinion I 100%. was yeah. blown away I did not expect it at all and I was like this is fantastic yeah oh yeah no the the extra sort of I mean just to see like the pencils to the inks to the markers was like worth the price of admission for the the re-release but yeah for for all you uh children out there um back when you would color a comic they would have just like sheets of red film and you'd cut away pieces of the film and that would be your yellow and your cyan and your magenta and you just like that's how you did your your color keys and i feel or like to be more precise a room <laughs> full of minimum wage yes. Yes. Employees do that based on the color sheets you give them. Yeah. yeah. That's even yeah. more involved than I thought it was. My goodness. Is, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, uh, I think actually with comics specifically, I don't even think they did CMYK. I think they just had. No, it was CMYK. Is it CMYK? Because I think there was a time. Or, or CMY. Where it was anyway. like, if, if I remember, I think there was a time where it was just like, it was four colors. So like, that's where you get four color comics. So yeah, CMYK. You, could have, you could have purple and green. Right, and because the hype was okay. green and yeah. I'm the one who teaches the coloring class. Let him take, I will look this up. <laughs> there, there was, so they had the, the CMYK, which should give you as much range as can be printed now. But in order to simplify the process, they had like key colors. Like you can't have a, smooth gradation between red and yellow you have like five key points you have like 25 percent yellow and 75 percent red 50 percent and 50 percent 75 and 25 percent like those are the only colors you can have so and, and so they were sim and this is just to like speed up the process but uh, this is like right after that time period because they are actually using photoshop i would love to own one of these pages the colored pages mm. oh man yeah i wonder how much these would go for like, <laughs> i mean just imagine that that big splash page where harley makes her big reveal like oh god that's just yeah. such a, tens of thousands of dollars yeah, that's yeah. a perfect just a perfect drawing of harlequin that yes. whole sequence that silent sequence where harley quinn runs out and gets the costume and breaks the joker out of jail that's just like silent comic like chef's kiss like just perfect uh wordless comic telling i just i also love the the splash page of the joker bursting through the doors and yelling at harley and the lettering is so well done the, the jagged lettering that he does mm. and just everything about this is so so well done yeah oh, yeah, yeah especially considering this is like almost his first comic there's very little yeah. there's very little to find flaw with. My favorite scene was the one on top of the train and just the insane perspective and architecture and the dynamism of like that bridge and like how the spot blacks were done like uh, mm. that that scene was beautiful. And I think the physicality of the characters as well is really great. The expression when Batman says puddin it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's not 
necessarily an easy transition from animation to comics because comics you have to choose your key moments differently mm. uh, and he's obviously just sort of intuited like no it's got to be this pose and this close-up and this and this which if you're doing this as a storyboard for to be animated you would not necessarily choose those moments as your key moments right yeah yeah because you have motion and sound to kind of support mm. the point yeah but yeah some really good body poses just his like yeah just the the joker and the way he can sort of like loom really menacingly over harley quinn and just like the body language in a lot of these panels is is just so perfect and i just there's something about bruce tim's work like i often will cite this to my animation students because like bruce tim is an animator and something that I really love about his work is the rhythm that he creates in his characters where there's like angular lines that then are complemented by curved lines. So if you look at his characters, like there'll be a sharp angle and then a curve and then a sharp angle and then a curve. And it just creates this really nice mm. rhythm to the line work that it's very quintessentially Bruce Tim, but also I think just is what adds to that appeal of the work is that there's just such a nice balance. The, the opening <laughs> to the animated series, it's so good. I think it's one of the best openings ever. And if you look at Bruce Tim's storyboards, they're they're so well done. Like he's just so good at conveying things without words, like the the posing, uh, the layout of each shot. It's just so well done. I'm yeah. so jealous of him. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do final thoughts? I was just going to say, like, if you want to see some fun takes on the character of Harley Quinn, the Arkham Origins has a really fun scene where uh, the Joker has just been apprehended by Batman for the first time. And he's telling his psychiatrist, Dr. Harleen Quinzel, about how he met this really special person and fate makes him think that like his life is now has purpose because he's met this person and he's talking about Batman, but Harley thinks oh, no. talking about her. And it's <laughs> just the way they do it, the dialogue and everything. It's so fantastic. And it is, it's all the animated series voice actors. I'm going to put a link in our show notes. And then the Telltale Games Batman has a really fun take on Harley Quinn because you meet the Joker before he becomes the Joker and he's seeing Harley Quinn and she was his psychiatrist at Arkham Asylum. And you immediately realize that she's manipulating him. And when the Joker's not in the room, she talks like a normal person. And then when the Joker's in the room, she puts on the, the accent and like calls him Puddin and stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's so great. And then if you want a fun modern take, Spotify just put out a audio novel called Harley Quinn and the Joker Sound Mind. And Harley Quinn is voiced by Christina Ricci. And it's all from her perspective. And yeah, the take on Harley Quinn is really interesting in, in this new podcast. So yeah, just lots of fun takes on the character. Um, I mean, I, I enjoyed this book. I would recommend this book. It was a lot of fun. I really liked how how much of the character it sort of was 
like it has its foundations right here. You don't always see that with characters where the part, you, you, like when a character is created, you don't necessarily get the starting of the full character arc for decades. Whereas I feel like in this comic, it's all it's all here. Like everything that has come after makes sense in the context of this story. Yeah, I, I agree. I really enjoyed this. And thank you for recommending it, Nina. I had no idea it existed. Uh, I would say it's a it's a great read for anyone who's curious about Harley Quinn as a character. I really enjoyed the art. I really enjoyed the writing. Uh, and it's a it's a contained one shot that doesn't need any external knowledge beyond like a cursory understanding of the Batman universe, which is I've never seen it. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know you aren't the biggest superhero fan, so I'm really glad you'll I, like I, this. I keep trying. I keep <laughs> trying. <laughs> I, like, I, I thought, you know, even even if like you hated it, we could still have an interesting discussion about these characters, but I'm, I'm glad everyone here uh, liked it. That's great. And obviously I recommend it highly, especially the deluxe edition. If you're an artist or even a writer, like just re um, looking at the, the roughs, I say quote unquote roughs, because... <laughs> They're pretty much perfect in my They're eyes. Pretty tight. Uh, They're pretty yeah. tight, even in pencils. It's worth it. It's worth it's worth picking up. And I think Dee Dee and Tim are so lucky that this one-shot character took off in this way. And I think it, that just goes to show that sometimes you don't have to put a ton of thought into a character. Just make a character you think would be kind of neat, maybe inspired by a friend, and then you can worry about the backstory later. <laughs> like, like so many of us end up creating characters in our heads. Uh, with like huge backstories that we rarely end up putting into an actual comic. And that's why sometimes working under a publisher or someone else's IP and having deadlines can be good for you because it forces you to just make up stuff as you go along sometimes. And that can lead to capturing lightning in a bottle. <laughs> also, if you look at the Joker and Harley and think that reminds you of me and my partner, uh, get out of that relationship. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, if you're wearing those, uh, I'm his Joker, he's my Harley t-shirts, it's time to move to separate <laughs> cities. <laughs> yeah, go find your poison ivy instead. Be an eco-terrorist <laughs> yes. or something. Oh man, yeah, we didn't even we didn't even get a chance to talk about like DC's unsung hero, uh, poison ivy. Uh, like we need more direct action superheroes willing to destroy corporations <laughs> to preserve trees. I don't know if I'll ever read the uh, G. Willow Wilson Poison Ivy, but knowing that she was writing it with Poison Ivy being the hero in her head makes me kind of think maybe, maybe I would read that. <laughs> uh, maybe one day you could discuss the Harley and Ivy um, comics that Deanie also wrote. Sure, yeah. Uh, all right, so does anyone have shout outs? Do I have any shout outs? Uh, <laughs> let's let's I go have in. No shout outs. I've got nothing. Let's go in shouting order. Go ahead, Jim. Right. Uh, shout out to Kate Beaton, whose ducks made it to the Canada Reads list. So if you're in, uh, if you're not in Canada, Canada Reads is a pretty big deal where the National Broadcasting Corporation picks certain books. Uh, and makes a lot of buzz about them and so it's a it's a pretty big honor to make it to Canada Reads and uh, if you had told me 10 years ago that a web cartoonist would be on the Canada Reads list I might not have believed you so <laughs> way to go Kate yeah, well deserved 
Yeah, here, here. I also take a minute to say that with Canada Reads and Canada Writes, I really think we also need to do Canada Arithmetics, but anyways. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we have participation. That's the yeah, that's there the we idea. go. There we go. So yeah, I'm just gonna really quickly shout out uh The Echo Chamber by John Boyne. I just finished this book. It was hilarious. It's all about internet culture. I actually haven't decided if the author is actually an old man who's mad at a cloud or not, but uh I think just the humorous take on internet culture I I enjoyed. Uh, I'm just not sure how serious the author was about his depiction of internet culture, but uh, it made me laugh. I want to give a shout out to Disco Elysium, which is a video game from 2019 uh, that lots of people have been saying, you got to play it, you got to play it for the past few years. And I kept thinking like, oh, it can't possibly be that good. Well, I finally played it and it is that good. It It's mind blowing. It's a role playing urban fantasy mystery video game you play as a detective who's lost all his memories from being blackout drunk the night before and i mean he's forgotten absolutely everything not just who he is but he doesn't know the world he lives in which is not the same as our world he's even forgotten the concept of money so we as a player get to learn about this world along with him so it's like sort of a blank slate uh but you're not completely because you are playing a character with a history still and you you build your character by slowly putting points into things like empathy, perception, endurance, logic, etc. You go around talking to people. I think it's best going into the story blind, so I don't want to reveal too much about it, but it's very political. Uh, you can turn into a socialist or an anarchist or communist or even a fascist if you want. You can even be apolitical, but the game will make fun of you for that. The art direction... <laughs> The art direction is amazing, and the writing is so good that it got me interested in reading books again. Like for the longest time, I did I just did not read books. Um, I've been picking up books and uh, uh, picks up uh, books about like political ideologies, like social justice, socialism, and even like fictional books recommended by other Disco Elysium players as being similar to the game. Uh, for example, right now I'm reading uh, Germinal by. Uh, Emil Zola, which is about coal miners going on strike. So I guess a mini shout out to that as well. Yeah, like I, I highly, highly recommend this video game. It has radicalized me. <laughs> nice. Great. I actually was hunting for a video game to play, so I might pick that up. Thank you. Yes, yeah. please do. Awesome. Uh, I, I did think of a shout out. So I'm, I'm going to shout out the podcast, If Books Could Kill. It's relatively new. Uh, every episode, what they do is they take a book that was a bestseller or highly influential at some point in the last 30 years and basically pick it apart and uh, tell you everything that's wrong with it and why it has had terrible consequences for the world. <laughs> and they picked some, they picked some classics. They've done um, the I'm end sure. of history. <laughs> They've done the population bomb. You'll feel really gun bad. Gun germs and steel? Uh, no, I mean, I don't know if gun, guns, germs, and steel is enough in their wheelhouse. I mean, there's problems with oh. it, but it's not as problematic as the books they talk about. Okay. I mean, there's no shortage. The, um, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of picks. So. I highly recommend the uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus episode. <laughs> uh, that is maybe the, the best uh, one that the book that needed the most criticism leveraged at it. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they all do. They all do. The population bomb is the book that popularized 
the idea that like the population is increasing. Maybe we should do something. And now it's not. So, <laughs> and we did nothing. <laughs> I didn't stop him from writing a second book. <laughs> Jeff, what's our next book going to be? Our next book is it's going to be All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Coffee.